should have done it. Hello, it's time for the Des Moines Register on Thursday, March 31st, and Linda's laughing at me because I've already forgotten what I'm doing here, right? Well, we've got a lot going on this morning. First of all, I need to tell you that all material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Twyla Glenn, and my partner at the microphone for the next 30 minutes. I've got to make my microphone. Boy, I didn't get it done here. Well, I'll tell you why things are busy today. We've got a visitor in the studio. His name is Kirk Anderson, and he's going to start reading for you folks tomorrow. So he's here learning the ropes. Say hello, Kirk. Hey, good morning, everybody. So you'll have a chance to listen to Kirk tomorrow, and uh, we hope we teach him well today. He's uh, not gotten a good lesson so far. <laughs> so let me tell you that for the first hour, we will cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can help keep the volunteer Voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. According to AccuWeather across the state today, it should be cloudy, winds southeast 8 to 16 miles per hour, a couple of showers tonight, and a couple of showers early, then occasional rain and drizzle to the east. And looking more closely at the forecast through the weekend for central Iowa, today and tonight we'll see a high of 50 and a low of 38, cloudy, winds southeast 8 to 16 miles per hour, a couple of showers tonight with winds south-southeast 10 to 20 miles per hour. On Friday, cooler with a morning shower, high of 44 and a low of 22. On Saturday, sun, sunny, then uh, clouds and chilly with a high of 41 and a low of 35. And on Sunday, should be rain with a thunderstorm with a high of 51 and a low of 43. And looking at our precipitation in the 24 hours through 4 p.m. Wednesday, we had zero precipitation. The month to date, we've seen seven-tenths of an inch against a normal of 1.3 inches. Our year, year to date, we've had 3.03 inches of precipitation against a normal of 3.78 inches. Last year, by this date, we'd had 4.91 inches of precipitation. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sunrise today. <clears throat> a frog in my throat on top of everything else. Sunrise today was at 6.17. No, it wasn't. It was at 7.16 a.m. With sunset today at 7.28 p.m. Moonrise today, 4.07 p.m. Moonset today, 6.02 a.m. Now turning to the front page of the register. The first story, the headline story, Simonson wins the at-large Des Moines Council seat. And an Iowa poll story on the recent Iowa poll, another piece of information out of that, GOP enjoys an edge of three to four U.S. House contests. And the Iowa House votes to make what they call illegal re-entry into the state a crime. Now, here with the first story is Linda. Well, I'll read about the uh, city council election. Uh, Simonson is an architect, and he sails to victory after raising over $280,000 for the race. Powered in part by a major fundraising advantage, Mike Simonson won Tuesday's special election for the at-large Des Moines City Council seat, formerly head by, held by Mayor County Boson, and rounding out the council as its seventh elected member. 
Unofficial results from the Polk County Auditor's Office show Simonson secured 58% of the votes. He will serve the remainder of Bozen's term, which runs through January 2026. Unlike the ward seats, the at-large position represents the entire city, and any Des Moines resident can vote in the election. Candidate Justin Lewis came in second, gaining roughly 33% of the votes, and afterward complained about large donations making council seats, quote, for sale. Challengers Claudia Addy and Benjamin Clark got nearly 3% of the votes each, while Rosemarie Smith secured about 2%. Simonson told the Des Moines Register he was very pleased with the results, thanking his supporters and everyone who voted in the election. This was a difficult election because it came upon us so quickly, he said. It was a special election that a lot of people weren't aware of, and it followed spring break. We should be thankful for people who voted. Unofficial numbers show just over 7,300 voters, about 5.7%, turned up at the polls in Polk County, according to auditor Jamie Fitzgerald. Simonson, a 64-year-old Des Moines architect, ran on issues such as adding affordable housing options, revitalizing neighborhoods, investing in public safety, and prioritizing fiscal responsibility. Simonson celebrated his victory among friends and supporters to place in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. He told the register he asked for a show of hands of who chipped into his campaign, from putting up yard signs to donating funds. It was literally the entire room, he said. Bozen vacated the at-large seat when she was sworn in as mayor in early January. The council was subsequently faced with a decision to appoint someone to fill the vacancy or hold a special election. The council chose the latter in a January meeting, giving Simonson and his four challengers less than three months to persuade voters. In a Des Moines Register questionnaire, Simonson wrote that the recent leadership change in the mayor's office has brought the opportunity to think big bring people together, and affect change. I have the abilities and relationships to contribute to the change effort for the betterment of Des Moines. Simonson raised big money to fund his campaign for the special election, amassing $282,113 from more than 260 cash and in-kind contributions within three months, according to filings with the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board. That amount nearly surpasses funds raised by City Council member Josh Mandelbaum for his mayoral bid, bringing in 283768 in cash and in-kind contributions between January 2023 and the end of October 2023.
Simonson was the only one of the five at-large candidates who filed campaign finance information to the Disclosure Board, the state agency responsible for administering campaign finance laws. Much of Simonson's financial support came from area developers and real estate investors who collectively contributed thousands of dollars to his campaign. Simonson lives in the Greenwood neighborhood and has served on multiple Des Moines City Government commissions and boards, including Plan and Zoning Commission, Parks and Recreation, and the Housing Appeals Board. So what are some of the priorities for his first few months? Simonson told the Register he wants to start meeting with City Council members to hear more about their priorities within the four City wards, as well as attend Neighborhood Association meetings he wasn't able to get to during the campaign to address residents' concerns. Simonson said approving the City budget for the next fiscal year, starting July 1st, is a critical item. He said he also wants to begin working on his other top priorities, including homelessness, housing security, and support for Des Moines public schools. So what's next for runner-up Justin Lewis? Lewis, a 34-year-old landscaping business owner, ran for the at-large seat to break barriers and build bridges between city government and our communities, he wrote in a register questionnaire. Lewis's priorities included criminal justice reform, affordable housing, food security, and neighborhood revitalization. These seats are for sale, and that has to change, Lewis told the register following the election results, pointing to the sum of money Simonson raised for his campaign. He also lamented the low turnout. So if we actually want to beat money, we have to show up at the polls, he said. And that's not me blaming residents. That's not residents' fault. That is the system that is created for them not to go to the polls. Still, Lewis said he received more positive feedback this election cycle compared to his failed bid for the same seat in 2021. He said he ran a pretty organic campaign made up of door knocking, handing out flyers, and hosting events. He estimates his campaign spent about $12,000. He says the outcome of the election isn't going to stop him from potentially pursuing other city council seats once they open. In the meantime, Lewis says he wants to use social media to help residents be aware of what's going on at city council meetings. So who were the five candidates running for the at-large seat? Also in the running for the at-large seat were Addie, Clark, and Smith. Robert Pate was on the ballot but suspended his campaign in early March. Addie, a 74-year-old retired physician, told the register she believed she was the best candidate to carry on the work current council members already do. 
She ran to address issues such as waste management, transportation and city communication, as well as clearing junk cars from properties. Clark, a 53-year-old merchandising assistant at a state center farm, said he was running to advocate for lower taxes, better mental health services, more trade school opportunities, and services for veterans. And Smith, a self-employed computer programmer, wanted to make a difference in the lives of Des Moines community members, she wrote in a register questionnaire. Smith, who ran for the Ward 1 seat in November, wanted to address homelessness as well as advocate for the Des Moines Regional Transit Authority and criminal justice reform. And this next article is from the recent Iowa poll, which the Register claims as an exclusive since 1943. The GOP enjoys the edge in three of four U.S. House seats here in Iowa. Iowa's likely voters prefer a Republican candidate over a Democrat in three of the state's four congressional districts as the November elections approach, the latest Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll shows. Republicans hold a wide double-digit lead in the 2nd Congressional District in northeastern Iowa and the 4th District in western Iowa, and a slight edge in the 3rd District, which includes Des Moines and central Iowa, South Central Iowa. But a Democratic candidate holds a narrow advantage in the 1st District in southeast Iowa. The results come as candidates gear up for a slate of primary elections in June and then the November general election. In 2022, Republicans delivered a red wave of results in Iowa, sending a full slate of Republicans to Congress for the first time in decades. Now, Democrats are hoping to wrest back some measure of influence in what could be an unpredictable election year. Former Republican President Donald Trump, who is facing dozens of felony charges across four criminal cases, is again challenging Democratic President Joe Biden, who remains deeply unpopular in Iowa, at the top of the ticket, potentially creating unusual ripple effects for candidates running down the ballot. Overall, Iowa's likely voters say they would prefer a Republican congressional candidate to a Democrat by a 17 percentage point margin, 54% to 37%. In each of the congressional districts, the results are as follows. In the first district, 45% Republican, 49% Democrat. Second district, 61% Republican, 33% Democrat. Third district, 44% Republican, 44 I'm sorry, 47% Republican, 44% Democrat. In the 4th District, 63% Republican, 24% Democrat. This will be the second time Iowans will cast votes for candidates using the current congressional maps, which were redrawn in the redistricting process in 2020. Seltzer and Company conducted the poll of 804 Iowa adults from February 25 to 28, and it has a margin of error of plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. The questions of 640 likely voters have a margin of error of plus or minus 3.9 percentage points. For the congressional districts, the margin of error ranges from plus or minus 6.7 to 7.1 percentage points. Competitive races could be brewing in the 1st District, which includes Davenport, and the 3rd District, which includes Des Moines. 
The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has identified both seats for its first wave of endorsements in the group's Red to Blue program, targeting key pickup opportunities. Republican U.S. Representative Zach Nunn won the 3rd District by less than a percentage point in 2020. The Iowa poll gives the Republican candidate a three-point lead. Election analysts have identified the 3rd District as Democrats' best pickup opportunity in Iowa, saying it is not a true toss-up race, but it does lean Republican. Two Democrats... Lacan Bacom and former U.S. Department of Agriculture official, and Melissa Vine, a nonprofit leader and small business owners, are seeking their party's nomination for a chance to take on none in November. Bruce Heilman, a 74-year-old poll respondent from Urbandale who agreed to a follow-up interview, said he plans to vote for the Republican candidate. Early on, he said, from when I started voting for maybe 15, 20 years, I really studied each candidate, and I don't think I voted a straight party ticket ever in major elections, he said. I really did try and choose the person whose message resonated with me. And then that started to change, he said. Heileman, a Republican, said that beginning with the Bill Clinton administration in the 1990s, he's seen a two-tiered system of justice that he believes unfairly targets conservatives. Today, he is worried about transgender athletes competing in women's sports, and he questions whether U.S. elections are being run fairly. He researched Nunn before voting for him in 2020, and he thinks Nunn has voted reliably with Republicans throughout his first term. To me, it's become pretty much of a black and white issue, he said. I've been voting straight party ticket for some time now, probably at least six or eight years as things, I think, in my opinion, have just continued to go over the cliff, he said. Analysts have pushed the 1st District, which Republican U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks won by nearly seven points in 2022 into the likely Republican category, arguing it will be harder for Democrats to flip. But the Iowa polls suggest the 1st District could also be competitive for Democrats. There, the poll shows that likely voters prefer a Democratic candidate by four percentage points, which would be a big swing from 2022. Democratic candidate Christina Bohanan, an Iowa City law professor and former state legislator who also challenged Miller Meeks in 2022, raised more money in the most recently reported fundraising quarter than the incumbent. She has nearly as much money in the bank, about $1.12 million, compared with Miller Meeks' $1.6 million. Neola Soto, a 76-year-old poll respondent from Davenport, says she does not know much about the Democratic candidate running, but she knows she does not like Miller Meeks. She appears arrogant, Soto said. She appears like she knows everything, and there seems to be no question marks in her life, and no, what do you think, in her life. She just is, you can take it or leave it, she said. Like Heileman, Soto used to put a lot of energy into deciphering the best candidate for the job, regardless of party affiliation. But now she plans to defer to whichever candidates are running as Democrats. My heart and my mind are independent, but I am voting a straight ticket, she said. I don't see a Republican out there that I can vote for, she said. Republican U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra won the dark red 4th Congressional District by 37 points in 2022. 
The poll puts a Republican candidate's current advantage at a similar margin, 39 adva- uh, percentage points. And the poll shows that the second district, which Republican U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson won by about eight percentage points in 2022, favors a Republican candidate by 28 percentage points. That district includes Cedar Rapids. The lead by a generic congressional Republican in the 4th and 2nd districts is stronger than Trump's lead over Biden in those same districts, one poll shows. In the 2nd district, a Republican congressional candidate leads a Democratic congressional candidate by 28 points, whereas Trump leads Biden by 23 points. And in the 4th district, a Republican leads by 39 points, whereas Trump leads by 30 points. The Iowa House votes to make illegal re-entry into state a crime. Iowa law enforcement would be allowed to arrest undocumented immigrants who were previously denied entry into the United States under a bill on its way to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk that mirrors a controversial Texas law. Senate File 2340 makes it a crime for someone to attempt to enter Iowa after being previously deported or barred from entering the United States. The bill's floor manager, Representative Stephen Holt, Republican of Denison, said the federal government has abdicated its responsibilities to enforce immigration laws, which he said requires states to act. The status quo of federal government failure is unsustainable, Holt said. I believe that in order to protect our communities and our state, we must push the envelope. And that is what this legislation does. Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, whose mother and partner are immigrants, said the bill will foster fear among immigrant communities and potentially hinder their cooperation with law enforcement in other situations. Illegal immigration is a serious problem that requires action, yet the approach lays out in this bill misses the heart of what it truly means to address this issue with compassion, wisdom, and effectiveness, he said. House lawmakers voted 64 to 30 to pass the measure Tuesday. All but one Republican present voted in favor of the bill. They were joined by three Democrats, Representatives John Forbes, Democrat of Urbandale, Keenan Judge, Democrat Waukee, and Josh Turek, Democrat of Council Bluffs. One Republican, Representative Brian Losey, Republican of Bondurant, joined every other Democrat in opposition. The Senate previously passed the bill along party lines on March 5th, so the House vote sends the measure to Reynolds for her signature. Reynolds said in a statement Tuesday that she intends to sign the bill into law. President Biden and his administration have failed to enforce our immigration laws and, in doing so, have compromised the sovereignty of our nation and the safety of its people, Reynolds said. States have stepped in to secure the border, preventing illegal migrants from entering our country and protecting our citizens. Americans deserve nothing less. 
Once Reynolds signs the measure, it will take effect July 1st. The Texas law is currently blocked from taking effect while a legal challenge plays out after a series of back-and-forth rulings on Tuesday. The 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals blocked the law Tuesday night, but set a hearing Wednesday to further consider whether to allow the law to take effect. The 5th Circuit's ruling came hours after the U.S. Supreme Court lifted a hold on the law earlier in the day, briefly allowing it to take effect before it was blocked again. The U.S. Justice Department is suing over the Texas law, arguing it unconstitutionally usurps the federal government's authority to enforce immigration laws and could create chaos in administering the law. Holt said he believes the U.S. Constitution does recognize some state, military, and immigration authority. Many other states are standing up to protect their sovereignty and their citizens, and Iowa must do the same, he said. I reject the doctrine of implied federal preemption in the situation we currently find ourselves in. Sheets said the bill steps into an area of law that is constitutionally reserved for the federal government. Immigration, with all of its nuances and implication, is a national issue that demands a cohesive federal response, he said. Attempting to address it at the state level not only oversteps our bounds, but also risks fragmenting our approach to a challenge that affects every corner of our nation. Escucha Mivos, an immigrant rights group that has protested several immigration-related bills at the Iowa Capitol this year, promised to continue fighting the legislation. From Texas to Iowa, our message is no tengan miedo, have no fear. Manny Galvez, an Escucha Mi Voz board member from North Liberty, said in a statement, We will continue to fight this unconstitutional law during rulemaking in the courts and on the streets. We will continue to organize to stop deportations, protect refugee children, and keep families together. The bill creates a new crime of illegal re-entry into the state, which applies to anyone who has previously been deported, removed, or denied admission to the United States. This is a nuance that maybe people haven't noticed, but it's sort of a second offense bill, Holt told reporters following the House vote. They have to have already been identified as having been in the country illegally. In most cases, the crime would be an aggravated misdemeanor, which carries a two-year sentence, but it would rise to a Class D felony, punishable by up to five years in prison in certain circumstances. And the crime would become a Class C felony, punishable by up to 10 years in prison if the person was arrested for allegedly committing another felony. For anyone convicted of illegal re-entry, 
the judge in the case would have to enter an order requiring the convicted person to return to the country they had come from. The bill forbids law enforcement officers from arresting someone if the person is in a school, a place of worship, a health care facility, or a facility for survivors of sexual assault. And the legislation provides legal immunity for local law enforcement and other government officials responsible for enforcing the measure. Iowa Republicans have considered several bills this year intended to deter illegal immigration over protests from critics who described the legislation as anti-immigrant. However, the other immigration measures failed to clear a legislative deadline last week and are no longer eligible for consideration this year. Those bills include a Senate-passed measure to require Iowa businesses to use the federal E-Verify system to determine whether their employees are legally in the country, a bill to bar undocumented immigrants from receiving in-state tuition rates at Iowa's public universities, and a measure passed by the House that would create a new crime of smuggling an undocumented immigrant. Holt said he still wants to find a way to pass the smuggling bill, possibly by attaching it to a budget bill or another piece of legislation before the end of this year's legislative session. He called it a long shot, but said, I'm not giving up. I still hope we can get that passed somehow in the Senate, he said. Democrats have said any immigration laws need to come from the federal government. They've chastised Republicans in Congress for killing a bill in the U.S. Senate that would have created a new mechanism to shut down the border if illegal crossings reach a certain threshold. Republicans want to talk about immigration because they think it's a winning issue for them, House Minority Leader Jennifer Confrost, Democrat of Windsor Heights, told reporters on Thursday. The bottom line is if they really wanted to talk about immigration and really wanted to fix the problem, they'd be reaching out to their Republican delegation in Washington and asking them to come back to the table since they walked away. House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, said immigration is one of the top issues lawmakers are hearing about from constituents. It's not a Republican or Democrat issue. This is what people are talking about, he said. And so we feel as a state, while we can't do the complete reform that I think Americans expect of our federal government, what can we do at the state level? And that wraps up the front page stories of the Register. We'll turn now to Metro in Iowa. The lead story here is about a ragbri pioneer. Legendary ragbri pioneer Thompson dies at the age of 86. And this is accompanied by a photograph of Frank Huck Thompson from, ni- from July 19, 2000. It shows him with his bike and his tent, and he looks like he's ready to go. The caption says this was his last full ragbri. 
Frank Huck Thompson will go down in Ragbri history as the ride's first superfan, an influencer long before the days of social media, whose enthusiasm for the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa helped establish the traditions of what is now the world's oldest and largest annual bike tour. Thompson, who died March 4 at the age of 86, rode every day of 28 editions of Ragbri, beginning with the inaugural ride in 1973. He covered more than 15,000 miles before he gave it up after completing the first day of the 2001 ride. After his streak ended, Thompson told the Des Moines Register, I've made so many friends from so many places, people from everywhere. That's why it's so special for me, he said. In the formative years of Ragbri, Thompson became a ride celebrity who preached the virtues of respect for the road and for Iowans who made the event possible, said his friend, retired longtime Des Moines Register columnist Chuck Offenberger. For several years, Thompson rode 2,000 to 3,000 miles annually, including the 400 to 500 he would cover on Ragbri. The guy was just a physical specimen, but he enjoyed it. That's what he believed, what he what he loved to do, and boy, he brought it, Offenberger said. He introduced a whole lot of people to Ragbri, he said. Thompson reveled in traveling through small towns, buying lemonade from kids and church lady pie, said his daughter, Shwanda Portinga. He was all in. It was all or nothing for him, Portinga said. Thompson's record for complete rag may have been matched or surpassed at some point in the ride's 50 years, but Offenberger finds it unlikely, saying typically riders today just would not be as driven as that. And there's no matching the impact Thompson had as one of the ride's early evangelists, Portinga said. Even if someone rode more complete rag I don't think it would have had the same effect, she said. He was all about meeting all the people on the ride, new people, old people, young people, and being able to share the ride with them and his experience with them and get the future of rag interested and excited about the ride, said his daughter. During his 28-year streak, Thompson endured Ragbri's most legendary extremes. On soggy Monday, July 27, 1981, the temperature never rose above 55, and constant rain and 30-mile-per-hour headwinds made it feel far colder. Fourteen years to the day later came Saggy Thursday, a hilly 74-mile day with 35-mile-per-hour headwinds and temperatures in the mid-90s. Thompson almost missed a day in 1991 after getting the flu or food poisoning, later admitting, there were a couple of days when I probably shouldn't have been writing, he said. But he recalled Soggy Monday as the worst, saying in 2000, I shivered all day and I made it though. I stopped in Schleswig and bought wool clothes from this guy who was selling them out of his attic. (laughs) Born in Cincinnati, Thompson was raised in Miami. He followed his brother to Iowa in the late 1960s to work for the Register, bundling newspapers. After his retirement in 2002, he worked for the Teamsters Local 90 and for Toyota of Des Moines before retiring again. Thompson never rode Ragbri for the beer or the parties. He and his Team Silver Street compadres enjoyed potent potables, but the journey and the people were more important things for them, Offenberger said. They were mostly worker bee types of guys and gals, but they would really have fun on Ragbri, and yet they were respectful of what few rules we had to follow, Offenberger said. He figured out how this should work and was going to make sure it stayed a cool event for as many as possible, said Offenberger. 
In his younger years, Thompson was a runner and a speed skater. He played ice hockey in his 30s until a puck hit him in the jaw and loosened his bottom teeth. Then he decided that cycling would be friendlier. Thompson loved Ragbri and the Register, but he loved being a family man most of all. Each year after Ragbri, the family drove from the ending town to the Lake of the Ozarks in mid-Missouri, and he checked out for a week, Portenga said. The next thing you know, Sunday afternoon, he's laid out on the lake on his raft drinking a beer, Portenga said. That was our two weeks of vacation in the summer every year, she added. In retirement, he enjoyed the company of his six granddaughters, Portenga said. Thompson's tie to Ragbri began when John Karras, Ragbri co-founder and register copy editor, told him in 1973 that he and Washington columnist Donald Call planned to ride their bikes across Iowa. Karras asked Thompson, then 36, if he wanted to join them, Thompson said in 1992. I thought about it for five minutes and then went right in and put in for vacation, Thompson said. He said it sounded like a great time. On August 25, 1973, the night before the first day of the inaugural trip, Thompson woke late into the night, worked late into the night, then rode one of the trucks hauling newspapers to Sioux City to start the ride that morning. Over the years, Thompson's status on Ragbri became part of his identity. He would be wherever there was fun to be had, said Offenberger. But maintaining his record weighed on him, his daughter said. He likely rode a few too many years as he felt pressure to keep going, she said. On the first day of Ragbri 29 in 2001, Thompson left Sioux City to ride to Storm Lake just like he had 28 years before. But the day felt ominous. Overcast skies spit rain on the riders for much of the day. A 74-year-old rider from Storm Lake collapsed around 3 p.m. and died of a heart attack a few miles outside Storm Lake. Halfway through the day, Thompson, then 64, decided that he would not ride the second day. It didn't feel right this year, he said at the time. There wasn't anything wrong with the ride. I love the ride. It was me. I wasn't ready physically, and I wasn't about to have a heart attack out there, he said. Thompson took his team's bus as far as Perry, the overnight town, on the fourth day. He saw a doctor, hoping to feel well enough to ride on, his daughter said. Instead, he went home to Des Moines with his family. Thompson rode his bike occasionally afterward, but he never returned to Ragbri, his daughter said. Last summer, Ragbri passed through Pleasant Hill, where Thompson lived in an independent living facility with his wife, Cheryl. Uh, I'm sorry, after his wife, Cheryl, died in 2022. Portenga offered to take him to the route to see the cyclists pass by. He declined, saying he would watch it on television. Thompson was in hospice with a kidney disease for three months before dying. A celebration of life will be announced at a later date. Thompson will be remembered for his grit, work ethic, and most of all, is inspiring others to revel in things they love, his daughter said. There was always, that was always what was important to him, according to Portenga. Always have fun with whatever you're trying to do, she said. Bill would tweak police complaint process. Measure would make it harder to revoke certification. A bill advanced by Iowa lawmakers Tuesday would allow police to receive more information about complaints filed against them and raise the threshold for revoking an officer's certification. House Study Bill 738 
would also add Iowa universities into a 2021 law that bans cities and counties from adopting policies that discourage the enforcement of any state, local, or municipal laws. The measure is backed by the Fraternal Order of Police, which helped craft the bill and argues that it provides key additional protections for officers missed in the 2021 law. Multiple police chiefs and city leaders expressed concerns about several aspects at a subcommittee meeting, saying the bill could create more administrative hurdles and muddy the complaint process. Under the bill, an officer or their attorney can request and receive a complete copy of the officer's report and any video or audio from the incident that spurred a complaint against them. They would not be charged any fees and receiving the information would not be considered disclosing public records. An interview of an officer related to a complaint also shall not be construed to be a hearing under the bill. Schuyler Linkerman, Limpkeman, attorney for the Fraternal Order of Police, argued that officers who are asked to recount details of an incident weeks, months, years down the road are allowed the right to review and refresh their recollection. Doug Strook, a lobbyist for the city of Waukee, argued that the language would stray from common practice and influence the officer who's under review. That's not how you handle it in a criminal case, Strook said. If you want to give what was going on in the officer's mind, you don't have them review this material and then tell us what was going on. The Iowa Police Chiefs Association expressed concerns with how the bill outlined requirements for internal affairs complaints, saying a formal process involving attorneys and charges would burden administrators who would otherwise handle the matter informally. 95% of what we do is what I would consider retraining or addressing issues with officers offices that aren't necessarily going to be punitive, but they are violations of policy, said Greg Stallman, legislative chair for the IPCA. New language in the proposal would also raise the threshold by which officers can have their certification revoked. The bill would remove improper from that definition, meaning that only by violating law could an officer have their certification revoked. In addition, the bill specific, I think it means specifies, that repeated use of excessive force must be in violation of law to qualify for decertification. Olita Davis, president of the Iowa FOP, said the word improper was very subjective. We want bad cops off the streets as well. We're just asking for that to happen faster, Davis said. 
Police at Iowa Board of Regents universities would be built into a 2021 law that bans local municipalities from banning or discouraging the enforcement of state, local, or municipal laws. Limpkeman cited protests in 2020 on the University of Iowa campus, saying campus officers need to have the same range of enforcement tools at their disposal as local departments under the 2021 law. They continue to have issues there, just as recent as this year with public protests, he said, likely a reference to a 2023 campus event that drew strong opposition and resulted in the arrest, charging, and recent acquittal of one protester. The bill would also allow the Attorney General to review any complaint against a Regents University or other municipality and specified that violations would have to have been intentional or in reckless disregard for public safety. Carol Ann Jensen, also with the Board of Regents, said the language could effectively make the AG's office both the defense and prosecutor for Regents universities since they're state-run institutions. We believe the language requiring our sworn police officers on all three campuses to enforce the laws of Iowa is redundant, Jensen said. We believe we already do that and have the power to do that. Conviction in a fatal OWI crash is overturned. A Des Moines driver convicted of vehicular homicide by operating without an, uh, uh, while, under, while intoxicated. I tried to say those. It just says OWI, but of course that means operating while intoxicated. In a 2020 crash, is entitled to a new trial, the Iowa Supreme Court has ruled. David Dwight Jackson, now 55, whose driving privileges had been revoked, was driving a stolen car on August 9, 2020, when he crossed the center line on Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and struck a three-wheeled motorcycle coming in the other direction. The driver of the trike, Bolin Lovan, died of his injuries. Witnesses testified Jackson continued driving until striking a building, then left the scene. One woman who spoke with him said he appeared to be in a daze and confused and that he claimed he had not been driving the vehicle. Officers located Jackson outside a nearby senior care facility where he attempted to run and was subdued with pepper spray. A blood test found he had methamphetamine in his system at the time of the crash. At his subsequent trial, Jackson testified he had borrowed the car from a neighbor and had not known that it was stolen. As for the crash itself, he claimed that he had a history of blacking out and had done so behind the wheel, saying he had no memory of the accident and had not realized until later that he had struck someone. In response, prosecutors called a jail health official to testify about Jackson's medical treatment there, showing the jail had treated him for detoxification but had no indication of any disorder that might have caused him to black out. Jackson was convicted of vehicular homicide by OWI, leaving the scene, reckless driving, and operating a vehicle without consent. On appeal, 
Jackson argued the district court had wrongly allowed prosecutors to bring up his medical record and that the administrator's testimony on the subject amounted to hearsay. The Iowa Court of Appeals upheld the verdict, but on further review, the Iowa Supreme Court partially reversed it, finding in a 4-3 to decision that the administrator's testimony should not have been allowed. Jackson's appellate lawyer, Gary Dickey, declined to comment on the decision. Like most states, Iowa law permits hearsay evidence under a business records exception. That applies to some types of documents, including in many cases medical records, that cite the patient's own statements. The state argued that Jackson opened the door to discussing his medical history through his testimony and that the jail administrator's testimony falls within that exception. The problem, Justice Christopher McDonald wrote for the majority, is that the state never introduced the actual jail records, instead bringing in the administrator to talk about the records, not in evidence. Numerous state and federal courts have found that to be inappropriate, as did the majority here. In short, the rules of evidence created a business records exception to the rule against hearsay and not a testimony about business records exception to the rule against hearsay, McDonald wrote. The majority found Jackson is entitled to a new trial because the inadmissible testimony could have been significant to the outcome. In particular, McDonald noted other evidence, such as driving data from the car and testimony from witnesses who saw the crash, could support the interpretation that Jackson had a medical episode behind the wheel. Justice Edward Mansfield, joined by Justice Thomas Waterman and Chief Justice Suvin Christensen, wrote that Jackson's conviction should stand. The dissenting opinion notes that Jackson's testimony at trial was the first time he had ever claimed to have a medical issue and that prosecutors had to quickly offer rebuttal evidence from the jail health care official. Jackson and his attorneys never argued in the trial or on appeal that the state was required to enter the actual records into evidence, Mansfield notes, and the minority objected to granting him a new trial on grounds that, in their view, he never asked for it. Mansfield also discussed Jackson's actions after the crash, including video where he appears to be moving purposefully and trying to gain entrance to the nearby senior building to argue that there was what they called substantial evidence that the defendant was under the effects of methamphetamine at the time of the accident and little corroboration or consistency for his claim of a blackout. That's the end of the quote from the finding. Lynn Hicks, spokesperson for the Polk County Attorney's Office, said Monday that prosecutors were considering whether to try Jackson again. Des Moines misses mark on affordable housing goals for 2023 as the city's plan enters its final year. Des Moines missed most of its goals for affordable housing last year, according to a report the city is preparing to submit to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The failure comes at a time when nationwide housing costs are continuing to soar and even contributing to a health crisis, according to a November study published in the peer-reviewed journal social science and medicine. No new affordable rental units were brought online in 2023 and no units were rehabilitated. Further, Des Moines failed to achieve, even in part, its goal of assisting 35 households facing homelessness with rapid rehousing. 
Lisa Krabs, the city's federal funds administrator, pointed to the COVID-19 pandemic as a factor in Des Moines' lagging performance, noting that the city's 2020 four-year master plan to address community housing needs was impacted from the start. Projects currently underway are expected to help the city close the gap in 2024, <coughs> the plan's final year. <coughs> Excuse me. If Des Moines continues to underperform, HUD can flag it for further monitoring, Krabs added. The city received $5.2 million in project funding last year, but she said no funds will be lost. There are consequences if the city misses its goals, but it's usually a whole evaluation of factors, not based on the goals alone, she said. So what goals did Des Moines meet? Des Moines had some successes in 2023. With the help of federal dollars, Des Moines met its goals of inspecting 5,000 properties and assisting 2,425 homeless people with finding shelter overnight, more than doubling its original figure of 1,000. The city also helped get nine new affordable homeowner housing units built, only three less than its target of 12, each with direct financial assistance for its buyer. Habitat for Humanity built all the units with Home Investment Partnership Program funds, the largest federal block grant program for state and local governments creating housing for low-income households. Though few projects crossed the finish line last year, several are expected to boost Des Moines' 2024 report. Near completion is the Starlofts, a mixed-use building on the site of the former Star gas station on Ingersoll Avenue. When it's done, it will offer 20 affordable units for tenants at various income levels, two of which will be home-funded. That's home in capital letters, which refers to the uh, grant. 20% of the units will be reserved for tenants who earn 30% of the area median income. Another 20% will rent at 60% area median income and the remainder at 80%. For an individual, the median income for the Des Moines Metro in 2023, according to HUD, was $73,062 and for a family, $105,600. Professor Holdings, registered to Hewa's son and associate professor of finance at Iowa State University, already rehabbed seven of its rental units, four of which will be affordable. The company received $80,000 in community development block grant funds. While construction was completed in late 2023, the units weren't leased till this year. In the Highland Park neighborhood, 
3614 6th Avenue, once home to the Highland Dry Goods and Shoe Store, is being redeveloped with four apartment units upstairs, three of which will be affordable to tenants earning 60% or less of the area median income. Developers Tim and Chloe Brantvold received $500,000 in block grant funding in 2023 and expect the project to be finished by this fall. Finally, BTB Investments II, owned by Tyler Tompkins and Brad Lowe of Spire Property Management, is rehabbing 40 rental units, most of which are single-family homes. All will be affordable. BTB received $1 million in block grant funds in 2023, and work will be carried out over the next four years as properties become vacant. And we'll wrap up the Metro and Iowa section with this story. Northeast Delaware Avenue in Ankeny closes for a construction project. Northeast Delaware Avenue in Ankeny is closed again for a major construction project. The closure became, began on March 18 from just north of Northeast Fountain View Boulevard to just south of Northeast 18th Street. It is part of a two-year project to convert Delaware from a two-lane rural road to a five-lane urban thoroughfare along most of its length between Northeast 5th Street and the Four Mile Creek Bridge. The detour route is East 1st Street to North Ankeny Boulevard to Northeast 18th Street. Effects of the construction include, first, full closure of the south section of the Northeast Delaware Avenue and Northwest 18th Street intersection. Next, closure to north and southbound traffic of the intersection of Northeast Delaware Avenue and Northeast 15th Street, Northeast 15th Lane. Closure, finally, of the intersection of Northeast Delaware Avenue and Northeast 16th Street, uh, which is also known as Northeast Windsor Drive, to all but west and eastbound traffic. These closures are expected to continue through the fall, according to a news release. Once the 2023-24 school year is over, Northeast Delaware Avenue will be fully closed from just south of Northeast 18th Street to just north of Four Mile Creek Bridge. The closure will include the intersection of Delaware and Northeast 18th Street. During the closure, residents living east of Delaware and south of Northeast 18th Street will be able to cross Delaware at Northeast 16th Street slash Northeast Windsor Drive. The detour route during the summer will be East 1st Street to North Ankeny Boulevard to Northeast Street, Northeast 36th Street. The west and north sections of the Delaware-slash-Northeast 18th Street intersection are scheduled to be open by the start of the 2024-25 school year at a minimum, according to the release from the city. The project is expected to be completed in the fall. Work on the $10 million project in 2023 included reconstructing Delaware from north to northeast 5th Street to north of Northeast Fountain View Boulevard. <laughs> 